The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church. Um, I want to start this morning with a quote that I found last week. It's from the 5th century A.D. biblical scholar Jerome. He wrote this, To be ignorant of Scripture is to be ignorant of Christ. That's a powerful little quote, people. Uh, And let me say with that, I hope you're reading your Bible regularly. Because when you're ignorant of the Scriptures, you're ignorant of Christ. That's the only way we're going to get to know Him. All right, we are looking at the section that runs from John 8.31 to 59, which is really the final dialogue in a series of dialogues built around the Feast of Tabernacles that's found in John 7 and 8. Now the focal point of this dialogue is who is Yeshua's father, or more specifically, who is the Jewish leader's father? In verse 31 and 32, Yeshua specifically addresses the Jews who have believed in Him. And and that's really important. He says in verse 30, then He spake to those Jews that believed in Him. So He's talking to a a very specific group of people who believed in Him. And then in verse 33, the subject and the audience shifts back to the hostile Jewish leaders. If you miss that, you're not going to get what's going on here. Because you think He's talking to Christians and saying these things, and He's not. Those... He's moved on. He's dealing with these people because they interrupted his speech. They said, we've never been in bondage to anyone, so that's being addressed to the rest of this chapter. And and as this section unfolds, this crowd, mainly the Jewish leaders who are vocal, become increasingly hostile and defensive. They claim Abraham is their father in verse 33 and 39. On the other hand, they claim God is their father in verse 41. And then they accuse Yeshua of being demon-possessed, and they accuse him of being a Samaritan. I don't know which one's worse from their culture, okay? But basically, you know, that's not, neither one of those things are good at all. And then finally, when you get to verse 59, they're picking up stones and they just want to kill him, all right? Their rage is taking all they can handle and they just want to kill him. So we ended last time with this. Verse 38, he says, I speak these things which I have seen with my father, Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. So after talking about how he does his father's will, Yeshua says to the religious leaders, you also do the things you heard from your father. So we see a comparison. He's talking about my father, who is Yahweh, and he said, your father. So they have a different father than he does. Yet, he doesn't tell them yet who the father is. We find out in verse 44 when he says, you are of your father the devil. That's pretty harsh language. Oh, by the way, I got my holidays mixed up. I thought it was Father's Day, and so I'm do, doing the fatherhood of Satan, you know, <laughs> is the message. And it's really Mother's Day. So, mothers, this has nothing to do with you, so sorry about that. Um, we're not any way implying anything here with this message. Just happened to fall on that day, all right? <laughs> all right, you know, for Yeshua to say to these leaders, you're of your father the devil, that, that's pretty strong language, right? Well, because the language is so harsh here, many liberal, critical scholars believe that not only did John create dialogues that Yeshua never spoke, 
But in the process, he distorted and indeed falsified what Yeshua actually taught. And the reason they do this and the burning issue here is these scholars, they think that John is being anti-Semitic. Yeshua is being anti-Semitic here. I mean, he's, he's saying these Jews are of the devil. We, we just can't have that. So they say that John distorted uh, the words of Yeshua to demonize the Jews. Folks, what we need to realize is that criticism of the Bible has become commonplace in the university religion departments around the country. I'm talking about the religion departments, all right? One of the worst places you want to send someone who's interested in spiritual things is to you know, a university to go through this stuff. Richard Hayes, who is professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School, says this, Nowhere in John's Gospel does the superheated animosity toward the Jews come more vigorous expression than in John 8. The dialogue of John 8, 39-47 is the most deeply disturbing outburst of anti-Jewish sentiment in the New Testament. You know, I, these guys are really ignorant. These are scholars that say this kind of stuff, okay? Is Yeshua's statement that Satan is the father of the Jews, is that anti-Semitic? Is that anti-Jewish? No, it's simply a matter of recognizing the audience of his speech. In other words, Yeshua wasn't talking to all Jews, but specifically to these individuals. He's telling those Jews who are trying to kill him, you're just like your father. He's a murderer. They have adopted a different father than he has. Listen, neither Yeshua nor John were anti-Semitic. You understand why, right? Do you, do you understand? I mean, some people don't get this, but they were Jews, okay? They were Jews. The apostles were all Jews. And since it's Mother's Day, Yeshua's mama was a Jew, okay? He's not anti-Semitic. It's really a foolish and a liberal position to think that either John or Yeshua are anti-Semitic. And that's how these people deal with the Bible. When strong language like this, they don't like it, they come up with some crazy idea about things. Alright, so Yeshua responds, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So he said, you're your father. And they're like, no, no, Abraham's our father. And Yeshua said, if Abraham, if you're Abraham's children, you do the deeds of Abraham. So they start out by saying, you know, Abraham's our father. To the Jews, that, that was kind of the end all, be all. Alfred Edesheim writes this, No principle was more fully established in the popular Jewish conviction than that all Israel had part in the world to come. If you're born a Jew, that's all that mattered. And this specifically because of their connection with Abraham. Abraham was represented as sitting at the gate of Gehenna to deliver any Israelite who otherwise might have been consigned to its terrors. So Abraham's sitting there just to make sure no Jew gets in there, okay? By accident. He's going to make sure that doesn't happen. All right, now these guys who are saying this, they are physical descendants of Abraham. And Yeshua admitted that in verse 37. But they were not true descendants of Abraham, which only happens by faith. Notice what Paul says in Romans 9. 6-8, through eight, very significant passage. It says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So you see, you got two Israels there. They're not all Israel that came from Israel. In other words, Israel, they're physical people who came from Israel, but they're not true Israel. 
nor, he says, are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Well, that's what they're claiming. We're Abraham's descendants. He goes, no, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, the physical born children of Abraham, who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. So not everyone who descended from Israel belongs to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham belong are really his true offspring. They were children of Abraham, but Sarah was not their mother. They were children of the slave woman, Hagar. And they were not children of promise. So Yeshua says to them, well, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Now, this is a second-class conditional sentence. It could be read like this. If you were Abraham's children, which you're not, then you would be doing what Abraham did, which you are not. All right? Now, let me ask you something. What's he talking about here? What are the deeds of Abraham? What did Abraham do? When you think of Abraham, the characteristic thing I think that we think about is what? What did he do? What did Abraham do? He believed God, all right? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's what Paul tells us. He says in in Galatians 3, 6, and 7, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. All right, so he's making it very clear. These Jews are arguing with Shua. They didn't have any faith, so they're not children of Abraham. Even though they could trace back to Abraham their lineage, they weren't true children of Abraham because they didn't have faith in Yeshua. Now, if you look at the life of Abraham, we see in Genesis that Abraham received the messenger of Yahweh. In Genesis 14, a representative of the Most High God by the name of Melchizedek came to Abraham and he blessed Abraham. How did Abraham respond to this representative of God? He gave him tithes. In fact, it is singled out in the Word of God for special emphasis in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek paid tithes, uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So Abraham was an individual who believed in God and who also responded to the representatives of God. The people whom our Lord is dealing with here, they don't believe in Him. And they also are not responding to him in a proper way because he's a representative of Yahweh and he keeps telling them that. He sent me. I came from him. They're not receiving him. They're not acting like Abraham at all. We could move into Genesis 18. You remember what happened in Genesis 18? Abraham and Sarah at home one evening sitting around the tent. It's a couple of angels showed up. And, any, and one of those angels turned out to be Yahweh. It was a theophany. This is Yahweh in physical presence. We would call it a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And what did Abraham do with the pre-incarnate Christ? He received Him. He embraced Him. They, they had dinner together. They fellowshiped together. Read Genesis 18. Abraham sat down and ate a meal with Yahweh. Can you even begin to fathom? He received Yahweh into his house when Yahweh came to earth. So Yeshua is saying to his audience, when God spoke, Abraham believed. I speak, and my words are words of God, and you don't believe. You're not like Abraham. You don't treat me the way Abraham treated me when I appeared at his house. 
You don't welcome me as a messenger that comes from heaven. You're not Abraham's children. Verse 40 says, But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. All right? Now notice here that he says, a man. Yeshua not only understood himself to be a representative of Yahweh, equal in divine essence with Yahweh, but also he was a true human being. He was a man. And this assertion, I think, would refute the Gnostic false teacher's assertion of eternal dualism between spirit and physical things. He was a man. He was the God-man. He says, this Abraham did not do. This is a figure of speech called Lytetes. And it means to affirm something by denying the opposite. Not only did Abraham not do this, but he did the precise opposite of that. Abraham believed God and he warmly welcomed the representatives of God. But you're seeking to kill me. You are not children of Abraham. Now what prophet of God also accused these unbelieving Jews when they claimed that they were a father of Abraham? John the Baptist dealt with them. In Matthew 5, now watch what John says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, these are the religious leaders who are claiming, in the, and up in the, if you go back in the text, which we're not doing for time, but if you look at the context, they claim to be Abraham's children. They're coming for baptism. He said to them, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So John calls the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, a bunch of snakes, a bunch of vipers, in other words, you guys are little snakes and your daddy is the big snake. And that's what Yeshua said. Okay, you're of your father the devil. All right? Verse 41, you're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now again, Yeshua says they're acting like their father. But again, he doesn't tell them yet who he's referring to here. So they respond, We're not born of fornication, we have one Father God. Now, there's several possibilities here to what they mean by this, all right? They may possibly be referring to the fact that after the return from the Babylonian captivity, in which many Jewish people were intermarried, it was considered among them that if they had intermarried, then they had heathen blood in them, all right? And therefore, they were descended from Satan. And they thought of them like that, and perhaps that's what they're referring to here. They may be thinking he's accusing them of having some Gentile heathen blood in their veins. And so they say, we're not born of adulterous Gentiles. God is our Father. Another possibility here is the crowd's response to Yeshua is that they had not been born illegitimate as a reference to Ishmael. Ishmael was the son born to the slave woman, Hagar, or Isaac was born to the free woman, Sarah. And so they could be saying, hey, Abraham is our father and Sarah is our mother. It's through Isaac that the covenant was renewed and they understood that. In the Tanakh, idol worship is compared to fornication or adultery. The Israelites who engaged in unfaithfulness through the worship of false gods were called the children of fornication in Hosea 2.4. Therefore, when the Jews deny that they are illegitimate, they are children of fornication, they're also denying that they have strayed from the covenant. In other words, we've been faithful. We're not, you know, idolaters. We're not part of that. And another, on the other hand, there's another possibility, and, and maybe all these are true, but this one, 
this is where I would land. <laughs> I think this is a subtle slur against Yeshua's birth. Alluding to the fact that his mother conceived him out of wedlock. And they're saying, we're not born of fornication like you are. We know who our father is. The later rabbinic literature, and, and you, the emphasis is on later, okay? After the time of Yeshua, the later rabbinic literature is filled with references to the fact that the Lord Yeshua was the bastard son of Mary. Now, why do you think later rabbis were teaching that? Because they rejected Yeshua. So they got to demonize him, you know, to, well, this guy, he was just the bastard son of Mary. They said Yeshua was the illegitimate child of Mary and a man who was not her husband, perhaps not even Joseph. Barclay writes this, the Jews put it about that Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, that her paramour had been a Roman soldier named Panthera, and that Yeshua was the child of that adulterous union. Again, they just, you know, they want to discredit him, so that's how they come up with this stuff, you know? And so they're saying, hey, you're saying that God's not our father? We're not born of fornication, all right? We have a father, God. It could be they're just saying, you know, we're not born like you were born. In other words, they're basically questioning his birth. Now, we understand that Yeshua was born of a virgin. We understand that. And by the time this gospel was written, John's readers understood that. They understood it was a supernatural, miraculous birth, but these unbelievers didn't get that, so they made up this stuff that there's something wrong here. He was born of fornication. So they say that God is their father, but Yeshua said, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Now, Yeshua keeps saying this over and over. Again, if here... This is a second-class conditional sentence. should read like this. If God were your father, which he's not, you'd love me, which you do not. See, if God were their father, they'd welcome his son rather than trying to kill him. They would acknowledge that God had sent him. They would love him as they think they love the father. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. Now, they heard what he was saying. They heard the words, they just didn't get it. They're unable to hear because their father is the devil, not God. And Yeshua tells them the truth, they're not able to believe it. Because only those who belong to God can hear the words of God. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit because they're what to him? Foolish. Foolishness. Now this is, you know, go back to John chapter 6. The whole chapter's about this. You can't hear my words because you don't belong to God. You haven't been called. You're not His children. You just don't get it. He says this over and over. He, said, he doesn't say you, say you will not. He says you cannot because they're spiritual dead. Therefore, they're unresponsive to the things He's saying. Just like, again, John 6, this is all about What he said in John 6, he continues to say it. You're not getting it. You can't get it. You're dead men. And then he says this. And this would have, you know, he's speaking to unbelievers who can't understand what he says. (laughs) And I love it. Yeshua does, these are not seeker sensitive words. Okay? He's not trying to figure out how can I win this crowd? How can I get this crowd on my side? You know, I want these guys to understand that I, I really care about them. And I want them to, you know, even though they don't get it, I want them to feel warm and fuzzy. He says to these leaders, 
You are of your father, the devil. That's serious stuff. And you want to do the desires of your father. He's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All right, this text, first of all, it does, there's a lot in this text. All right, we're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning on, on verse 44 and deal with uh, some of this stuff. This text, first of all, it clearly points out that the Lord believed in the existence and the personality of Satan. All right? J.P. Lang puts it this way. This is the most important doctrinal statement of Christ concerning the devil, teaching soberly and solemnly without figure of speech. He says it teaches three things. The objective personality of the devil, the agency in the fall of the human race, and his connection with the whole history of sin and the father of murder and falsehood, and thirdly, his own apostasy from a previous normal state in which he was created. All right, so he says, you're of your father, the devil. Finally, Yeshua identified who their daddy is. All right? This is what he's been alluding. He alluded to it in verse 38, alluded to it in 41. Now he says, Abraham's not your father, God's not your father, your father is the devil. And again, that's strong language, people. Here's another thing I see in this text. The Lord here is denying the doctrine of the fatherhood of God of all people. You heard that doctrine. People say, well, God is the father of everybody. You know, not in the father in the sense of all that are saved, but the father of everybody that exists. God's the father of all. Well, our Lord makes a distinction here among men. He affirms that there are some who are sons of God, and there are others who are sons of the devil. So Yeshua is not a universalist. All right, he's making a distinction here. You guys are not of God, he tells them. Your father is the devil. Now, devil here is from the Greek word diabolos, which is from dia, meaning through or between, and balo, meaning to cast or to throw. So it means a false accuser, a slander, one who utters false charges or misrepresents, who defames and damages another person's reputation. Now, in order to understand what our Lord is saying to these Jews here, first of all, I think we need to understand who Satan is. So, we need to do a little devilology or Satanology. All right? the, doctrine of the, the doctrine of the devil, the doctrine of Satan. Who is the devil or Satan? You go out and ask the man on the street, the Christian on the street, and ask them who that is, and you'll find out that most people believe the devil is God's equal and opposite. Okay? You got God over here, you got devil over here, and they're just kind of fighting it out. You know, may the better man win. I mean, that's just kind of the view of the church. So I think we need to understand, who is he? What does the Scripture say? Where did he come from? Where did Satan come from? Heaven, alright? How is he the father of these Jews? What is their connection there? Some people teach a doctrine called the serpent seed doctrine. That Satan had sex with Eve. Okay? I don't think it's biblical at all, but, you know, that's all right. That's what's taught. All right? Let me ask you this. Where do we first see Satan in Scripture? Job? Genesis? (laughs) In the garden? Okay, here's the thing. If you go to the text in Genesis 3... Doesn't say anything about Satan in that text. Okay? 
So if you, if you got just the Tanakh, you got trouble with that, okay? But we got the New Testament, and the New Testament is commentary on the Old, all right? So we can find out if we go to a book of Revelation. Guess who wrote Revelation? Lazarus, same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, all right? We go to there, and we find out who this is in Genesis 3. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. This is the text that connects it all together. It tells us who that serpent was in the garden. He was the devil. He was Satan. Now, with that understanding, let's go to Genesis 3, because this is the first time we kind of run into him here. And, uh, but what I want to do before we go to Genesis 3, we've got to go back further, back to creation. And I'm not talking about Genesis 1. Okay, I'm talking about Job. Job 38, 4-7. Here in this text, Yahweh is talking to Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Um, where were you, Job? I wasn't around. Okay, yeah, so shut up, in other words. Why are you questioning me? And people, this is a, this is a significant text, I think, practically for believers. God created everything that exists. Okay? And we really have no right to question him or anything he does. So when he does something, we just praise him for what he does and because he's God. And, you know, this is what God is about. You're God, you get to do what you want. He says, Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? That's sarcasm. Okay. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or what laid its cornerstone? Now, watch what he says here. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here, morning stars and sons of God are names of divine beings. They are members of what we call the divine council. Now, some folks want to argue that sons of God are merely humans. You tell me how humans are here before creation. God is creating and the sons of God are shouting for joy at creation. So before creation, before the creation of the earth, before the creation of man, what you have is Yahweh. And most people think, well, Yahweh, he's just out there by himself. No, he's not by himself, because Yahweh had created other gods, divine beings that made up his divine counsel. Now, Yahweh always existed. That's hard for me. Don't think about that too long, because you'll get hurt. Because how do you all, I mean, how do you always be? That's hard. I understand beginnings. Yahweh had no beginning. He always existed. No beginning, no end. All right? But at a point in time, Yahweh created other divine beings, lesser beings, as his counsel or family. And they hung out together in the mountain of God and they discussed things together. And we see this throughout Scripture. In Genesis, we learn that the first man, Adam, yeah, I believe Adam was the first man. Okay? That's almost a controversial position now. Uh, the first man, Adam, was created by God and he was brought into the garden. The cosmic mountain of God. That's what theologians call God's dwelling. The cosmic mountain, because God's dwelled in mountains. The dwelling place of Yahweh. The place where Yahweh holds counsel. Now let me ask you this. How long after Adam was created was it before he was brought into the garden of God? So God created him outside. The Bible tells us that. Created him outside the garden. 
brought him into the garden to fellowship with him. How long before he did that? No one knows? I can tell you. Well, I can't really tell you for sure, but I can give you. The scripture doesn't tell us. But if we go to Second Temple literature, all right, which the Jews held, which they believed strongly in, go to the book of Jubilees, it says this. And after Adam had completed 40 days in the land where he had been created, we brought him into the Garden of Eden. Now, I think that's interesting, 40 days. I just, you know, that's interesting. Here he is. That's a real significant period, okay, in Bible time. He's created 40 days, a time of trial, a time of testing. And here is Adam, 40 days, and he's brought into fellowship with God. Now, the book of Jubilees is a pseudepigraphal work. Sometimes this book is called the Lesser Genesis. It was written in the 2nd century B.C. and it records an account of the biblical history of the world from creation to Moses. So Adam was brought into the garden. He's brought into this intimate relationship with Yahweh. Genesis 3.8 says, They heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, they're in the garden. And they hear God Walking. I mean, they're fellowshipping with God. They walked in this garden. They dwelt in the presence of God. Eden is where Yahweh lives and He issues His decrees. He is here with His heavenly host who existed before humanity did. This is the divine council, the family of God. And now Adam's brought into this family. At the end of the creation account, what happens? When the Bible goes through the different days of creation, what's God do on the seventh day? He rests. Was He tired? Was it exhausting for Him? No. What does that mean? Well, for us, we're thinking, oh, He sat down, took a break. I don't know. What does it mean? Well, let's see. We have to have an understanding of that culture and understand what they mean. John Walton, in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, writes this. The difference is the piece of information that everyone knew in the ancient world and which most modern readers are totally oblivious. Deity rests in a temple. And only in a temple. So when the Bible says he rested, it means he's in his temple. And what we need to see is that Eden compares to a tabernacle or temple. It is Yahweh's dwelling. It's where the divine council was. In any culture, God dwelt in the best places. That makes sense, right? He's God. A lush garden, an oasis, a high mountaintop. So Adam was created and he's brought into Yahweh's dwelling with his council. Now Yahweh, now Adam is fellowshipping with God in the council. You know what happens next, right? Man's tempted and he sins. All right, another question for you. How long was Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned, you think? <laughs> you're guessing now, you're, you're grasping at straws, right? I mean, you read the text and it sounds like God created him. God said, you brought him in the garden. God said, don't do this. And the next day, Satan shows up and they sin, right? I mean, do you get that idea when you're reading the text? Yeah, it's like, wow, that was really quick, okay? I <laughs> haven't The guy didn't last long at all, all right? Well, again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but if we go to the book of Jubilees, Jubilees says this, and after the completion of the seven years, which he had completed there, seven years exactly, and in the second month, On the 17th day, at 8 a.m., as a matter of fact, of the month, the serpent came and approached the woman. 
Again, this is, you know, people might, there's some people who argue this lot of students pick for literature they think is inspired. I don't think it's inspired, but here's what's important to me. This is what the people of Yeshua's day believed. This literature was something they understood, they held to. All right? So was it seven years? I don't know. But that's interesting. You know, I don't know how they came about that, but again, it's interesting. All right. So we don't know how long, but we do know this. Who was it that tempted Eve? The text says it was a serpent. And Revelation 12.8 tells us the serpent was Satan. All right? They weren't tempted by a snake. Okay? You've got those pictures in your head. You've seen it. The lady's, you know, holding an apple or something. There's a snake wrapped around a tree. Get that out of your head, okay? That'll do more damage than anything else, all right? I think what we see in Genesis 3 is one of the sons of God. A watcher. A council member. Tempting man. Because man has been brought into their environment. And like, who is this guy? Get him out of here. And they didn't like that. So they want to get him out of there. God had made man vice-regent with him. And I think some of the watchers may have not been too happy about that. So I said, we'll take care of this. We'll get this guy out of here. So who tempted Adam and Eve and why? Well, let's first look at the who. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as Elohim said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So here we see that it was a serpent who tempted him. That we know. What we need to know is who or what is the serpent. And I believe that the serpent was a divine being. It's not a member of the animal kingdom. That's really important. It's a member of the divine council. The watcher chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by prompting humans to disobey Yahweh so they'd either be killed or removed from the garden. And guess what? It worked. They got him kicked out, right? Now, serpent here is from the Hebrew word nachash, which according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser, is most likely a triple enton, which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root of nachash is nun het shin, which is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in the Hebrew. If you take Nakash as pointing to the noun, the word here would be serpent. All right? And that's a valid translation, but you've got to keep in mind this serpent is not a member of the animal kingdom. It's not a snake. If you take it as a verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. So Nakash could imply a deceiver. That option would fit the story, right? As an adjective, it would mean bronze or shining one. And in our text, the Hebrew is ha-nakash, the shining one. And what we have to understand, we don't get this either, luminosity is a characteristic of a divine being in the Hebrew Bible and in the A&E text. Luminosity is not a characteristic of an animal or a man. This is a divine being who comes to Eve. You think Eve is going to carry on a conversation with a snake? That would kind of surprise her. What's this snake doing talking? You know, I, who is this? I don't think so, but would she have a conversation with a divine being? Yeah, she lived in the garden. Especially if they've been in that garden for seven years. And listen, from the other pseudopigraph for literature, when Adam got kicked out of the garden, he taught all the rest of the patriarchs about God. 
How did Noah learn all the things he did? He's walking with God because Adam was still alive and Adam's teaching him. Because Adam was in that garden walking with God. So Adam and Eve live in the garden. They're familiar with the divine being. Uh, look at Isaiah 6, for example. It said, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with His train. The train of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. This is a throne room scene. All right, He's on the throne. He's in the temple. This is a throne room scene. God is in the throne. And there is a seraphim. The word seraphim means shining or blazing ones. The Hebrew seraph as a noun means serpent. So what we have here is a divine throne room and a throne room guardian. This seraph is a guardian of the throne. So I think what we see in Genesis 3 is a divine being, not an animal, but a throne room guardian, a seraph, a serpentine being, one who's part of the divine council in Eden. He decides to deceive humanity to get rid of them. To get humans removed from Eden, from Yahweh's counsel and family. Now why? Why did, this, why did this divine being have a problem? Well, I think Scripture hints to the fact of pride. I think Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. We'll look at that in a minute. But first, let's look at some pseudepigrapher work called The Life of Adam and Eve, which elaborates on the motive and role of Satan in the fall of humankind. In chapter 14, it states this, And Michael went out and called to all the angels, Worship the image of God as the Lord God has commanded. Now, who's he asking them to worship? Who's the image of God? Man. We're created in the image of God. So, he, they're telling the angels, you worship this. This is my image. Okay? He's an image bearer. And Michael himself worshiped first. Then he called... You know, the angels are a little bit lower than us. Okay? Then he called me and he said, Worship the image of the Lord God. And I answered, It is not for me to worship Adam. And since Michael kept urging me to worship, this is Satan talking, I said to him, Why do you urge me? I will not worship an inferior and younger being than I. I am his senior in the creation. Before he was made, I was already made. It's his duty to worship me. Got a little competition going on. When the angels who were under me heard this, they refused to worship him. And Michael said, Worship the image of God. But if you will not worship Him, the Lord God will be angry with you. And I said, If He be angry with me, I will set my seat above the stars of heaven. I will be like the highest. that sound familiar? that sound familiar? That should, because that comes from Scripture. All right? He says, I'm going to set my seat above the stars. Look at Isaiah 14, 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars are sons of God. All right, They're divine beings. I will set on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. So consequently, God expelled the devil and his angels from heaven to earth. And the devil explained to Adam in chapter 16 of the life in Adam and Eve. He says, And the Lord God was angry with me and banished me and my angels from our glory. Yeah, it was glory to dwell with God. And on your account, we were expelled from our abode into this world and hurled to the ground. Straight away, we were overcome with grief since we had been robbed of such great glory. And we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. And with guile, I cheated your wife 
and through her action caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as I have been driven out of my glory. Now, first Enoch, in First Enoch, the temptation of Eve is attributed to Gadriel. But here it's attributed to Satan. And the link between Satan and the serpent is attested in the book, uh, The Life of Adam and Eve, chapter 33, and the book 2 Enoch 31. Both texts state it was the devil who led Eve astray. Now, the life of Adam and Eve in chapter 33 states this, Moreover, the Lord God gave us two angels to guard us. The hour came when the angels had ascended to worship in the sight of God. Immediately, the enemy, the devil, found an opportunity while the angels were absent, and the devil led your mother astray to eat the unlawful and forbidden tree, and she ate and gave to me. So here it is. It's the devil who's doing this. He is leading her astray. He led your mother astray. She ate of the fruit. So the divine being, Satan, seems to have been jealous of the man. So he got him to sin. He knew, you know, you violate God's command, you're getting booted out of the garden. he kick him out of the cosmic mountain. Now, there are parallels that we have to understand between Genesis 3, what the count we just looked at here, Isaiah 14, and Ezekiel 28. Now, let me say this as clearly as I can. The passage in Isaiah 14, the passage in Ezekiel 28, are not about Satan. Okay? They are about evil tyrant kings. Ezekiel is about the king of Tyre. Isaiah is about the king of Babylon. They're about these tyrant kings whose pride is described in terms of an ancient story about a divine being who fell from paradise. So he's using... The divine being who fell is an analogy to speak to these tyrant kings. And he's saying, your story is going to be like their story. They got proud, they fell, you're going to fall also. So these accounts in these texts, they reference Eden directly in Ezekiel's case and indirectly in Isaiah's case. In Genesis 3, the Nakash, the serpent, the shining one, the deceiver, was in the Garden of Eden where Yahweh walked. All right. Now notice what Ezekiel says, all right? Again, he's addressing the king of Tyre, but he's using the divine story of this being who fell behind it. He says, you're in Eden, the garden of God. Alright, we already saw that, you know, Satan in that garden. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, lazilo, and the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, what we have to see here is the gemstones are descriptor, descriptors of luminescence. Fiery stones, shiny stones, gemstones. These are stock descriptions of divine beings in the ancient world. Again, luminescence. The gemstones are about the divine counsel. Luminescence is a characteristic of divine beings or the divine presence across the ancient Near Eastern world and in the Tanakh. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. The anointed cherub. You were on the mountain. You were amidst the stones of fire. The anointed cherub is the word machash here, which can mean anointed, And it may come from a Semitic homonym that means to shine, the shining one. Cherub and seraphim are the same. In Assyrian, it's a throne room guardian. 
Now, Brian, Brown, Driver, and Briggs' definition is an angelic being, the guardian of Eden. So the cherub, serpent figure, is in the midst of the stones of fire, which again is a, just a description of the divine counsel. Luminescence. In this text, Eden is called the garden or the mountain. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now, Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser says, seal of perfection could mean serpent. In Semitic, at times the M at the end of a noun is silent. It's called in Hebrew the enclitic M. And if this is the case here, what we have is het, vav, tet, or tav, which would mean serpent of perfection. So, Seal of perfection, serp, you, had, you are the serpent of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. In Isaiah 14.12, we have this. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. O star of the morning, son of dawn, here is Hillel ben Shachar, which means shining one. Now, in the Latin, they translated this as Lu- Lucifer. So if you've got to translate King James and it says Lucifer, that's just a Latin translation of Hillel ben Shakar, and it means the shining one, a luminescent being. Verse 13, you said in your heart, and here's, here's where we get the motive here. All right, This is a divine being behind the scenes that he's comparing the king of Babylon here to. He says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I'm going to sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Now, this idea of a divine council of gods is familiar with all the A&E texts. Okay? All these different cultures had their pantheon of gods. The difference was, in their pantheon, the gods are always fighting for who's number one. And they're killing each other off, and they're taking in the top place and stuff like that. Well, in the biblical text, there's only one God that's at the top. It's Yahweh, and there's no competition whatsoever. And anyone tries to give them any competition, they're wiped out. All right? It's as simple as that. But here's Satan. He wants to ascend. He, he wants to ascend above the stars of God to the mount of the assembly. The mount of the assembly is, the, is Yahweh's home. It's the divine council. The, the divine being seeks to usurp Yahweh. We already saw in Job 38 that the sons of God are described as the stars. So this being talked about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was in Eden. He's a member of the divine council. This being tempts man and man sins. He falls and he's removed from Yahweh's temple. He's put out of the garden, which is the temple of God, which is the fellowship of God. He's put out. What does God tell them as soon as they're put out? They get a promise. They get a... uh, Genesis 3.15 the proto-evangelum, the first hint of the gospel, he goes, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. So Eve's seed, a human being, will come and fix what Adam has broken. Adam, for the human race, has, has destroyed it. But God is saying, a deliverer will come. I'm going to fix this, man. I want you in my presence. I want man to fellowship with me. So I'm going to fix it. But from now on, he's banished from the presence of Yahweh. So that's kind of the who and why of Satan. 
He's a divine being. Over jealousy, got man kicked out. And what's interesting that God, you know, declares his plan here. I'm going to send a seed to the woman. So what's the next step that the watchers take to try to block this plan? It comes in Genesis 6, when the angels, the watchers come down, intermarry with men, corrupt the seed of man. Again, we got to stop this Messiah from showing up. This is a divine battle from beginning to end, people, okay? It's all about God battling the gods, you know? They want to stop this, all right? But it's not stoppable, okay? I love Corinthians says, if they had known, if they had known, if the rulers of this age had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because it, it completed the plan. They messed up. But they didn't know. All right, let's go back to our text. That's a little Satan demonology. Now, next week, you know, we're going to get it. We're gonna, I'll finish this next week when we, we'll do more on talking about demons and stuff because they're going to call him a demon. And I want you to, I will go into the rest of the, the demonology here so we get a full picture. But right now, I want to go back to our text and wrap this up. All right. These children of Abraham who stand in opposition to Yeshua have become the seed of the serpent and the enemies of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. They're enemies. All right. He says, you want to do the desires of your father. Here's what we have to get. In the Hebrew language and culture, when you said you were the son of someone, today you say, well, that's his son. Okay, so what? doesn't really mean much to us. But then it meant that they shared attributes. It meant they shared disposition. They shared desires and characteristics. He's the son of a father. You ever heard that saying, he's a chip off the old block? It means he's just like his daddy. That's what he's telling these Jews. You're like your daddy, okay? Satan. So your father's the devil, and you want to do the same desires your father did. Their attitudes and actions pointed to the devil as their father for two reasons. First, they wanted to kill Yeshua, right? The text tells us that. Yeshua already said that. You want to kill me? They wanted to kill him. Guess what? Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Now, let me ask you this. Who did Satan murder? Okay, thank you. He murdered the human race. He killed us. In the sense, the most important sense, we died to fellowship with God. He got us kicked out of the garden. There's nothing more important than being in fellowship with God. And he killed the human race. All right? He also killed Abel. Okay? Look at 1 John 3.12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one. No, he was of the devil. And slew his own brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So here we had Cain. He's of the evil one. So he slay, you know, Satan is behind this. He was a murderer. Now how extensive was the murderous power of Satan? Well, we already kind of talked about that. Hebrews says that he had the power of death and he exercised it in one act and basically killed the human race. Killed us. In a sense of we lost our fellowship with God. He's a murderer from the beginning. Now, the beginning of what? Was he a murderer from the beginning of his existence? No, because there was nobody really to murder then. I think he was a murderer from the beginning of human history. All right, let's go to um, 
Matthew 19.4. And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now the word beginning here in both of these texts is arche. And in both texts it stands for, I believe, the beginning of human history. All right, God created them from the beginning. I mean, that's the beginning of human history when God created man and woman, right? I think this is one of those texts that makes me believe that Adam is the first man. God started out human history. He created these two. He was a murderer from the beginning. As soon as man came on the scene, he's a murderer. He wants to get rid of them. Believers, we talk about this a lot, but we, like Adam, are image bearers, okay? We're supposed to bear the image of Yahweh. In other words, we should be like our Father. We should be doing the deeds of our Father. And I think the one, if we could pick out one that stood above everything else that would characterize our Father, it would be love. But often, here's the sad thing, we as believers act like the devil instead of our Father. Look at 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 1 John 3, 1-10 contrasts the children of God to the children of the devil. And they, the contrast is by the things they do. See, hatred is a characteristic of Satan, not our father Yahweh. So we as his children, as the image bearers of God, are to love one another. And as we do that, we demonstrate we're children of the Father. But often, even though we're God's children, we demonstrate hatred, and that's not a characteristic of our Father. So their attitudes and actions pointed to the devil as their father for two reasons. First, they wanted to kill Yeshua. Second, they had abandoned the truth for lies. And the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He had const- consistently lied throughout history. In Eden, he told the woman, you surely won't die. Now God said, if you eat that, you're going to die. And Satan says, no, you won't die. Don't believe that. He was lying because he was trying to kill them and he knew that if they disobeyed God, guess what? God would take care of it. These Jewish leaders were acting like their father, the devil, in that they, like Satan, were seeking to keep men from Yahweh's presence. That's what the devil was doing in the beginning. He wanted to keep keep men out of the presence of God. That's what these religious leaders are doing. The system they supported and defended, according to Paul, was a ministration of death. It kept men separated from God. The Messiah had come to bring men back into the presence of God, and what did they do? They wanted to kill Him. And what did they do? They did kill Him. We don't want you to bring men back into the presence of God. Just like Satan. They were murderers, and they were liars, just like their father. We get to the book of Revelation that uh, Lazarus wrote, and in dealing with the seven churches twice, Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, Yeshua says to the Jews, you are of your father. No, he says, you are, of, you are the synagogue of Satan. Now, synagogue, very Jewish term there, because that, that was where they worshipped, Right? Well, now guess what? The synagogue has now become the synagogue of Satan. Because you're murderers and liars just like your father. And today, you know, many people will say, well, well, you know, my wife asked me the other day, what, 
Judeo-Christianity. What does that mean? He said, it's nonsense. If you're a Jew, you're not Christian. If you're Christian, you're not Jew. There's not a Judeo-Christian thing. You know, when, when Christ came on the scene, Judaism was dead. You either accepted the Messiah or you stayed a Jew and you stayed dead. All right? And so Yeshua says, that's the synagogue of Satan. While modern Judaism today claims to be based on the Bible, sadly, is anything from Scripture, okay? It's based on the authority of men who can no longer abide by the laws and regulations of the Old Covenant. Because there's no temple anymore. AD 70, the temple was wiped out. There's no more. They have never sacrificed since. You know what? They, They still go through the feasts. The seven feasts. They go through it every year. Read what the Bible lays out. Just read Leviticus 23, the layout of the feast. How do you do the feast without animals, sacrifices? You don't. But they changed everything. They totally reworked the system, kept right on going. We're not going to let God hinder us by destroying the temple, by destroying you know, the temple and all the sacrifices. There's no priesthood anymore. They're representatives of God to the people. They're gone. There's no priesthood in rabbinical Judaism. With the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Old Covenant faith came to an end. And a fully established New Covenant church took place. And now children of God are those by faith and faith alone. doesn't matter who your ancestors are. The only thing that matters is do you have faith? Have you trusted Yeshua the Christ? And we got a lot of false systems out there today. we got a lot of people who are still preaching the devil's doctrine. They're trying to keep men out of the presence of God by the things they teach and believe. The New Testament's very clear. It's faith and faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, I pray You'd give us the heart of Bereans. That we would study the Scripture to see if these things are so. I pray, Father, that people would not believe what I say because I say it but they would examine the Scriptures to see if it's true. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Thank You for all that You've provided us today. May we bury ourselves in the Scripture, Lord, that we might know You and that we might make You known. Amen.